Welcome to the Books and Arts Podcast. I'll be with you in a moment after a brief word from our sponsor. Regardless of party or political labels, there are amazing examples of real-life success stories happening across America. Local leaders are showing how to solve problems in healthcare, education, and other issues Washington just can't fix. Experience those stories in the new book, Falling in Love with America Again, by Jim DeMint and the Heritage Foundation. Get it today at inlovewithamerica.com. That's inlovewithamerica.com. Hello, this is Philip Terzian, literary editor of the Weekly Standard, and I wanted to take a few minutes to talk to you about the books and arts section of the March 17th issue of the Weekly Standard. As always, I've tried to assemble a tasty little uh, selection of morsels for you, um, coming in from all um, all sides of interest, and our lead piece this week um, uh, is a bit of a shift of gears from the usual subject matter in the magazine, but it was something I couldn't resist. It's called The Birds of America by none other than John James Audubon, and actually the co-editor is a man called Joel Oppenheimer. And this is a, a very grand and very colorful and very beautiful edition of... John James Audubon's um, illustrations of birds in the early 19th century. It's from uh, what was known as the chromolithographic edition, which was done in the mid-19th century by Audubon's son, which was an attempt to recreate, uh, rather reproduce, um, the Audubon engravings in a less expensive manner, as, as you may know. Folios and and volumes of Audubon's illustrations were engravings, which were very difficult to um, produce and certainly very difficult to publish and expensive to buy. So the chromolithographic edition was the first popular edition of Audubon, and although our reviewer Christoph Ermscher, who's a um, historian of natural history at Indiana University, um, makes the point that the the prints that came from this process are not quite as beautiful as the as uh, as Audubon's engravings. Nevertheless, they are by anybody's standards uh, lovely to look at and quite beautiful indeed. And um, his story, uh, the, the reviewer's uh, means of describing how the book was uh, produced in the in the 19th century, and the story behind it is really really almost as interesting as the as the illustrations themselves. Our second review is by a uh, veteran contributor to these pages, Lawrence Klepp, a writer in New York. Um, But it's a little off his usual subject matter. It's a very interesting book published originally in England called The Invention of News, How the World Came to Know About Itself. The author is Andrew Pedigree, and it's from the Yale University Press, although it was published originally in Britain, obviously. Pedigree is a professor of history. He's a Scot, I think. Anyway, he teaches at St. Andrews University. And um, this is basically a very interesting account of how in the 17th century, what we think of as newspapers uh, first came to be. Um, The first um, newspaper in Professor Pedigree's uh, estimation 
was not English but German actually appeared in Strasbourg in 1605, which makes it contemporary with Shakespeare. The first, the first English um, newspaper is not too long afterwards. Uh, I've I've actually furnished as an illustration uh, on the uh, in the in the magazine a front page from the London Gazette of 1705, which was a very early English newspaper. What's interesting about it is that, as you can imagine, the history of, I mean, obviously we've had uh, news is eternal, and as long as men have, uh, uh, as long as societies have existed, there have been mechanisms of relating uh, news among people um, since the invention of the written word, and, and obviously printing greatly accelerated what we think of as as journalism, but newspapers as we know them today um, can be pretty uh, closely tracked back to the broadsheets and publications that uh, Andrew Pedigree talks about in this book. Uh, and what's interesting, I think, for our readers is uh, two things. One is that, as you may know, most newspapers. Um, in England, on the continent, and certainly in the United States, didn't begin uh, as objective purveyors of of information. They began as partisan broadsheets. Uh, newspapers were usually associated with with political parties, or factions, or churches, or segments uh, divided to some degree by doctrine. A and B, uh, it may be discouraging or interesting to know that the, uh, especially if you're standing in the checkout line at uh, your local grocery store, the human appetite for news about murders, about celebrities, about um, uh, odd goings on around the world is nothing new. I mean, we we shake our heads at the uh, magazine covers about the Kardashians or breathless coverage of what uh, Miley Cyrus or Justin Bieber are up to, but it's it's actually a very human and a very old human instinct, which Andrew Pedigree talks about, and he gives a lot of interesting illustrations of um, how these things um, not only in, interested people in their day, but helped uh, sell newspapers and produce the uh, the world of, of publications that we have today whether print or online they all have a they all have a common point of origin our next review is by another uh, contributor to these pages Micah Maddox um, Micah uh, tends to write about literature and in this case he's reviewing a very interesting book called Shakespeare Beyond Doubt Evidence Argument Controversy by Paul Edmondson and Stanley Wells. I think along with the Kennedy assassination, there's no subject that has engendered more uh, conspiracy theories and alternate theories of reality than the authorship of William Shakespeare's plays. And the, the co-authors of, uh, of this book um, in my view and in Micah Maddox's view, do a first-class job of making the case for William Shakespeare and making a case for him in a way that's that's completely and utterly persuasive. 
which is not to say that there won't be um, dissenters um, forevermore. Um, Micah Maddox and, and the book both talk about the first book, at least in America, to question uh, Shakespeare's authorship was published in the mid-19th century in 1857 by a woman called Delia Bacon, who was an American schoolteacher who uh, uh, really had no particular candidate um, uh, instead of Shakespeare, although she did advance the causes of Francis Bacon and Walter Raleigh, but she just was convinced, as most uh, Shakespeare skeptics are, that it, no matter who it might have been in reality, it couldn't possibly be William Shakespeare, the reason being that Shakespeare writes so much about the English court and about uh, classical events and goings-on among the aristocrats of England. And of course, as we know, Shakespeare was was an actor. He wasn't university educated. He came out of the English middle class at best. He was a provincial. He was from Stratford before he came up to London to be an actor. How could someone like that possibly know anything about the world that he writes about, which to my mind is an argument that could only be made by someone who doesn't know much about the world of the imagination or the history of a fair number of other writers who've written about worlds that they uh, don't necessarily represent in themselves and may not have experienced and might not even know, but that's what makes them geniuses and Certainly for those of us who read and write English, uh, Shakespeare is the preeminent genius, and it's a it's a, a fun piece to read in that sense. Mark Pulliam, uh, who uh, writes occasionally in our pages, uh, reviews a book that will be probably largely of interest to our readers, uh, well, specifically of interest, I should say, to our readers in California, but will is potentially of interest to everyone. It's called, the book is called The Beholden State, obviously a pun on the Golden State, California's Lost Promise and How to Recapture It. It's a series of essays edited by Brian Anderson, who's the editor of City Journal, the quarterly magazine of the Manhattan Institute. The point of the book is that the Manhattan Institute and City Journal have been instrumental in recent decades in putting New York City back on a on a sound um, economic and fiscal and to some degree governmental basis, although one could argue the current de Blasio administration is a, a bit of a, a regression. But certainly anyone who's uh, with experience of New York knows that the New York of 2014 is very different from the New York of 1975 when it teetered on the verge of bankruptcy, in fact was bankrupt, and obviously was grimy and crime-ridden, graffiti-ridden, and and one of the least safe cities in America. Anyway, uh, Brian Anderson's concern is that California, largely because of the gigantic burden of debt which it faces from um, public employee uh, uh, compensation and pensions, could be facing a problem very similar to New York, and we're already seeing in California certain problems in certain municipalities where they just plain out and out have run out of money, and the quality of life is swiftly declining, and people are fleeing the Golden State um, at record rates. So it's an interesting problem, and there are a number of solutions 
offered, which are explored here. And of course, it's a it's a lesson that, while specific to California, is hardly confined to California. I can think of a whole lot of other states that face the same problem. They're not as big and not as well publicized as California, but it's a it's something that our political leadership needs to come to grips with. And Mark Pulliam does a good job of bringing it all together. Our final book review is a, a fun piece by Martin Morse Worcester, who, apart from being a historian of American business and expert on philanthropy, is also a an expert on booze. Uh, he writes about um, he 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 rev- reviews alcoholic products and r- reviews books about liquor um, for the American Brewer and other publications as well as of course writing for many people including the weekly standard but this is a, a a fun book called to have and have another a hemingway cocktail companion by philip green uh, everyone who knows anything about ernest hemingway knows that among among other he was an enthusiastic hunter an enthusiastic sailor um a man of many parts but um including a uh, a lusty um, uh, a drinker, not exactly an alcoholic. I, I think you can argue that he, or I suppose you could say he was a high-functioning alcoholic. He didn't, unlike Scott Fitzgerald, his friend, he didn't mix alcohol with his work, but you could probably argue that, that alcohol played a, a disproportionate role in his life. But having said that, he also was uh, something of a specialist in the production of certain cocktails, and of course, anyone who's visited places like Key West or Paris or especially Havana can uh, seek out those places where Ernest Hemingway would hold forth and um, uh, with a daiquiri in hand. And the book, of course, uh, not only talks a lot about Hemingway's drinking history, but gives you various recipes for Hemingway's idea of what constituted the perfect martini. Um, I myself have sat in the um, hot sun in Havana outside the uh, Floridita or inside and uh, consumed a couple of daiquiris and know the pleasant but debilitating effect it can have. But that is not true of this review, which which is written with with great good humor and and a lot of interesting information and some insight into Hemingway, which I didn't know about. Our final piece is um, by our movie reviewer, John Podhoritz, although it's not a movie review. It's it's an essay about the current golden age of television, which we seem to be in the middle of um, with uh, very popular and very literate and critically acclaimed series appearing mostly on cable, such things as uh, Sopranos and uh, uh, True Detective and True Blood and The Walking Dead and Difficult uh, uh, and others. Um, uh, Breaking Bad, I guess, is the most uh, is the best known recent example of a highly acclaimed series that has um, achieved a certain cachet among among intellectuals. John's view is that um, these are 
these constitute a, a, a genuine golden age in entertainment. It's a kind of alternative universe, both to movies and to network television. But he's intrigued by the the um, the mood of most of these programs, which is um, very much about uh, the lower depths of American society. Uh, it's a kind of uh, slightly psychopathic vision of of the uh, uh, underside of American life. I've I've headlined the, the the piece "Hard Times: The White Trashing of American Television," and um, uh, it's it's an interesting piece, not only in the sense that it it nicely sums up these programs that seem to be in vogue at the moment, but makes the point that for good or ill, um, these also to some degree represent uh, the view of American society from Hollywood, or the view from Sunset Boulevard, as um, as uh, Ben Stein once famously called it, and that this is a phenomenon in, as, as John says, um, rich Hollywood folk making mincemeat out of poor rural folk is another element of the ongoing American culture war that should not go unremarked. I don't think that John makes any final judgment about all this, and who knows where it will all lead. But these very high-quality shows do have a kind of theme to them, which, in his in his view, and mine as well, um, needs to be recognized and probably tells us a little bit about... Uh, the way we live now. So I hope the section this week is of interest, if not compelling interest to all. I thank you for listening and look forward to talking to you again next week.